Hey, true crime fans, welcome back to Murder on the Map. I'm your host, Taylor, and I'm really glad that you're here. In case you're new to my show, here's a quick rundown. Each week, I'll talk you through an underreported, cold, or bizarre true crime case in each U.S. state. Today is Connecticut, and this case is kind of crazy, even though I feel like I say that every week. This is the case of Jennifer Dulos. Jennifer Dulos was born Jennifer Farber on September 27, 1968 in New York City. She grew up in an area called Brooklyn Heights in a very wealthy family, and you could definitely say that her upbringing was very comfortable. Her dad made a ton of money in finance and he was actually the youngest VP ever of Chase Manhattan Bank. He also founded his own company. Her mom also worked because she had her doctorate in early childhood education and they both definitely valued education in their careers. Jennifer also had an older sister that she was very, very close with, and not only did she grow up privileged financially, but she was definitely very loved as a child, so she had a privileged childhood in that sense as well. But even though she had, like, everything that someone could want, she was also very, very down-to-earth. People that knew her said that she had an incredibly warm personality and a contagious smile. She was very soft-spoken, very kind, and also very smart. Kind of an introverted type and she spent a lot of time being introspective and getting into her own thoughts. And one thing she really loved to do in her spare time was write. She knew from a young age that eventually she wanted to pursue a full-time career in writing, and she did. After graduating from Brown University in 1990, she eventually got her master's degree in writing from NYU. She worked there as a freelance writer and had her own blog where she wrote about her everyday life and her experience. She was just like, had a casual approach to writing and she planned to branch out into other projects as well. But then in 2003, she had a by-chance meeting with an old classmate. This was someone she knew at Brown, and she actually met him when she was at the Aspen Airport in Colorado. His name was Fotis Dulos. He was a Greek-American man who was a year ahead of Jennifer in college, and she was really interested in him right off the bat. He came across as very charming and very friendly, and he also seemed well-educated, worldly, and he had a lot to offer when it came to having a deep conversation. And that was something that was super, super important to Jennifer. Fotis was born in Turkey, and he grew up in Athens, Greece, and he came to the United States as an immigrant in 1986. After graduating college, he got an MBA in finance from Columbia Business School, and he was known for having a very outgoing personality, being extroverted, and kind of the opposite of Jennifer. He also lived a very active lifestyle. He had actually just won a championship for water skiing that he was very proud of. So after they met by chance, Jennifer and Fotis decided they were going to meet up for an actual date in New York City. But at the time, he was still married to his first wife. But even still, Jennifer was thrilled. 
She even wrote about it in her blog that the photo seemed like a catch because he was so charismatic and interesting and deep. And not only that, he was funny and he was super handsome. He was smart and he just seemed like the full package to her. And the most interesting thing to Jennifer was that Fotis also seemed very interested in getting married, settling down, and having a family. And that's really what she wanted at that point in her life. So they went on their first official date and it went well and they continued to date and eventually got married in August of 2004. And when they got married, he had only officially been divorced about a month or so, so it was pretty quick. After they got married, they moved to an upscale area of Farmington, Connecticut. That same year, Fotis decided to start his own company, so it was pretty hectic, and there was just a lot going on for them. He decided he wanted to get into real estate development and started building really fancy luxury homes, and it seemed like he did really well with this. Once he got his company rolling, they decided they wanted to have kids, and they ended up having five kids, two different sets of twins. The first set of twins were boys, and then they had another set of twins, a boy and a girl, and then they also had a daughter. It was definitely a full house, and Fotis ended up full designing a huge six-bedroom mansion for them. They had a library, a wine cellar, a fully equipped gym, and an elevator, a four-car garage, and a full-time home office with a private entrance, a bathroom, and a kitchenette. Jennifer decided to be a stay-at-home mom with the kids. She still kind of worked her blog here and there and did some freelance projects, but most of the time she was focused on her children. Even most of what she was writing about on her blog was about being a mom, and the kids were really the most important thing in her life. She had learned that from her parents. They were very involved, and they were also very involved grandparents because they lived in New York City so they could come down and visit quite often. Fotis decided that he wanted to start the kids in sports super young, and he starts the first one in water skiing. By the time the oldest kids were six or seven, they were already competing in international water skiing competition. He went hard on training the kids and he almost made it like a second job for himself to train them. It became one of those things where the kids liked it at first, but eventually the fun was just sucked out of the situation because their dad took it way too seriously. And eventually it became really stressful for them. Jennifer felt like he was pushing them way too hard and every time she would bring it up to him, he would get really angry. It would lead to a huge fight and that's the thing about Fotis is that he had a very quick temper and was always very quick to anger. As the years went on, they started fighting more and more and their relationship eventually became pretty toxic. All of the fighting just took its toll on the relationship and they were gradually spending a lot less time together. They felt irritated by each other more easily than ever and they just spent less and less time together as the years went on. It was clear they were growing apart and Fotis started traveling more for work. He would also go do his water skiing competitions as well, so he was gone a lot by 2016 and he was away for at least 10 days out of the month, which is a lot for anybody, but especially with five kids. But honestly, Jennifer didn't seem to mind him being gone. In fact, she kind of felt like the house ran smoother while he was gone, so she didn't really fight it. Then in June of 2017, Fotis goes to a competition in Miami, and while he's there doing his water skiing, he meets a woman named Michelle Traconis. Michelle was a single mom from Venezuela, and she instantly falls for Fotis after spending just a little bit of time with him in the boat. It felt like he had more in common with her than he ever had with Jennifer. 
Michelle was very athletic and competitive, just like Fotis. She actually worked as an ESPN reporter in South America and reported on snow skiing. She rode horses in her spare time and was also a competitive water skier. So Fotis was really into her, and she was too, so they were both falling fast. And according to Michelle, she had no idea that he was actually married at the time. She was under the impression that Fotis and Jennifer had separated and that he was currently single, essentially. And she was so happy about meeting him that she went and told her family and her friends and how excited she was to meet this guy. She was really impressed by him, and she couldn't believe she had found such a handsome, charming guy with his life together who was also so kind. And one thing that she would rave about is how he was super family-oriented. But to me, it's like he was so family-oriented that he spent all his time away from his family, and instead he just spent that time with Michelle. That doesn't really check out. So his kids were clearly suffering through all of this, and Jennifer knew that there had to be an affair going on. I mean, it wasn't hard to tell, especially with him being gone all the time and showing no interest in her or the kids. So she confronts him about everything in March of 2017, and as soon as she does, it just all spills out and he confesses to everything, and Jennifer isn't even that shocked. She knew deep down that this was the beginning of the end. So fast forwarding just a little bit to June 19th, 2017, Jennifer and the kids had gone on a day trip to New York City, and Fotis was back at the house waiting on them to come home. Jennifer had also taken their long-term babysitter named Lauren, but they never came back that day. So Fotis began to get worried, and he starts calling and texting Lauren and Jennifer, and neither of them are answering. However, their messages are being marked as delivered. He keeps texting, but no one is responding. So he gets concerned and calls 911. Here's the audio of that call. I, uh, I'm worried about my uh, wife and kids because they uh, they left to go to New York and I haven't uh, been able to get in touch with them. Okay, where they were going to New York? What's the license plate on the car? Uh, I have to get them for you. Okay, what, what's the, who's the car registered to? It's uh, registered to my wife's name, Jennifer Dulos. Spell the last name for me. Uh, Dulos, D-U-L-O-S. Jennifer. G-A-E-N-N-I-F-E-R? Yes. Your date of birth? September 27, 
he calls up Michelle and asks her to come take up the vacancy in his house. So Michelle and her poor young daughter, I hate it for the daughter getting drugged into this, move into the house in Farmington. Now, it's really important to note here in the court documents that Jennifer actually noted how afraid she was to make this move. She was nervous that Fotis might retaliate. She specifically said that she had been scared to divorce him because he can be dangerous and ruthless, especially when he thinks he has been wronged. She expressed that she was worried that he might retaliate and that he had already threatened to kidnap the kids before, so that was her main concern. But Fotis fought back and he actually denied all of those claims. He filed a motion for custody of the case, so all of this back and forth went through, you know, the court for a while. They filed 300 motions and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in lawyers' fees and court's costs, and then... So after all of that back and forth, it seems like things get settled, but in January of 2018, Jennifer ended up filing for an emergency second order of custody and this is because they had agreed in court that Michelle would not be around Jennifer's kids at all but by Fotis moving her into the house he violated that court order. So in March Jennifer was granted sole physical custody and full custody of the children and Fotis was able to do supervised visits only. Obviously this was a huge blow for him and he was not happy about it at all. He submitted a formal request to get custody of his children again but then on May 17, 2019 that request was denied, and Fotis was obviously crushed by this and very angry. So now it's May of 2019, and Jennifer is happy and thriving, and he's been denied full custody of the kids, she has full control, full custody of the children, he's getting supervised visits, and she feels good about that. But honestly, she's still on terrible terms with him and is still afraid of him. So on May 24th, Jennifer had a really busy day scheduled. She had two different doctor's appointments in New York City, one at 11 a.m. and one at 1 p.m. But before all that, she had to get the kids to school, and obviously that's not easy. She's got five kids, all under 13, she's a single mom, and getting them out the door is a big challenge. Now on this particular day, the kids had a half day at school, but because her last appointment was at 1 p.m. in New York, Lauren, their babysitter, would obviously have to pick them up from school that day. So Jennifer took the Range Rover into the city for her appointments, and she told Lauren that she would be back later that afternoon. So Lauren gets to the house about 11.30. She's going to go in and drop some stuff off, maybe do a few things, and then head out to get the kids. But as soon as she walks in the house, she said right away something just felt off. She immediately noticed that the Range Rover was still in the garage, and she thought that this was weird because Jennifer had told her specifically that instead of taking the Range Rover to get the kids, she would need to take one of the other cars. She thought maybe that Jennifer took the other car instead, and her other car was a Chevrolet Suburban SUV. That was not in the garage. But then she went inside and saw Jennifer's purse on the floor, which is obviously a huge red flag because most women take their purses with them everywhere, especially if you're going to go into another state for doctor's appointments. You need your purse, your license, your credit card to pay your copay, that kind of thing. And then there was a mug of tea and a granola bar just sitting out on the counter, like someone had left it in a rush. And Lauren knew that Jennifer is not the type to leave food and mugs out because she's very, very clean. So Lauren grabs a paper towel and starts to clean up, and as she's cleaning up, she realizes that there's only two rolls of paper towels left. But she, that strikes her as really weird because when she was there yesterday, there were 12. And she's wondering what kind of mess could have happened in the house that would require Jennifer to use 10 
paper towel rolls. But she tries not to think too much of it, and she decides to go pick the kids up at noon like she's supposed to. She gets them, and then she texts Jennifer at 12.43 just to check in, and she gets no reply. She texts her again at 1.10 and got no reply, but she figured, you know, she's probably still in that second appointment, so she doesn't worry about it. Lauren waited until 2.30 and texted her again and figured it was probably over, so she thought it was weird that she still got no answer. So 4 o'clock came and she decides that she should call her, but when she does, it went straight to voicemail. So she gets very concerned right away and starts texting a few of Jennifer's friends, seeing if any of them have heard from her. She contacts one of her friends named Carrie, and Carrie also thinks that this is bizarre. She knew that there was no way that Jennifer just wouldn't be responding. Jennifer was the type to always respond or answer calls as soon as she could. So Lauren's obviously panicked. She has five kids, doesn't know where the mom is, and she doesn't know what to do. So she decides that she's going to take the kids to Jennifer's parents in New York. When she gets there, it's about 7 p.m., and so they decide to report her missing immediately. At this time, Jennifer was a 50-year-old rich white lady, so police take her case seriously right away. She's a, like I said, rich white lady who's very active in her children's life and her family's life, and then she just goes completely missing. It does not compute. So they spring into action right away. Honestly, this is the way they should treat all cases, but as I've talked about on the show before, unfortunately not everybody gets attention this quickly, but Jennifer did. So as we know, she was supposed to go into the city for her important doctor appointments, but it turns out that she missed them. And this was super, super unlike her. And because she hadn't packed any type of bag or anything, she wasn't planning to go away for a little while. And she left her purse, which is the biggest red flag. Obviously, it makes no sense for Jennifer to just leave her life and abandon all five kids with no warning. So they they start by searching Jennifer's home. And they started in the garage, and in the garage there was a dark red stain on the floor. It was on the side of her Range Rover, and it was splattered onto a garbage can. It looked like blood, but there was this swirled pattern in the middle that looked like someone had clearly tried to clean it up. So they officially named the house a crime scene. They blocked everything off and swabbed everything for DNA, everything inside the whole house and the garage. And as soon as they start this, they start looking for Jennifer's SUV, And they found it right away, literally just over an hour after she was reported missing. They recovered the vehicle, and it was abandoned in Waverly Park, which is about three miles away from her home, and it was backed up against this tree. So they immediately launched a large-scale search of the park. The park was 300 acres and had multiple police departments involved, and the FBI actually joined as well, and they conducted the whole search. They brought in canine units, divers, and even helicopters. They were just hoping to find something. That night, they decided they needed to inform Fotis, so they went to his place, which is about 70 miles away from where she lives. And when they talked to him, he says that he hasn't heard from Jennifer or the kids all day, but he said that he was concerned and agreed to go to the police station and be interviewed and help in any way that he can. So by the next morning, the story made it to the media. Jennifer's friend Carrie kind of became the family spokesperson, and their focus was obviously on finding Jennifer, but they also wanted to clear right away that they wanted to keep the kids safe and shielded from everything going on. But Carrie said that they had a sinking feeling in their heart that Jennifer was never coming back after the media covered it. There was a lot of interest from the public. People just couldn't believe this mother of five had vanished this way. Here's some audio from a few different press conferences.
love you so much and we just want you to come home. You'd have to have a heart of stone if it didn't affect you. It's just surprising there's so many police officers around. If you have any information about her whereabouts or concerning her disappearance, please, please contact the New Canaan Police or the Connecticut State Police and help us. Tons of people volunteered to physically search for Jennifer and help hang up flyers to spread awareness, and Jennifer's mother filed an emergency action to get full custody of the kids temporarily and make it so Fotis would have no contact with them. It was granted the next afternoon, so Fotis went up to the police station as he promised to do his interviews. His lawyer was literally on the phone with a criminal defense lawyer. As they went into the doors, they were fully prepared and lawyers told police that he would not actually be answering any questions that day, and detectives thought this was really weird. When they first interviewed him, he seemed concerned and willing to do anything he could to help the mother of his five kids, and since she's missing, you would think that he would want to do everything he could to help locate her, but he didn't. He didn't want to cooperate at all, and not only that, he didn't even ask how the search was going for Jennifer, if there were any leads or new information, he didn't seem to give a shit at all. So they ended up seizing his phone and they were working on obtaining a search warrant for his home and his car and they had access to Jennifer's credit cards, her bank account, and her cell phone records, but there had been no activity since the morning she disappeared. But then they got a big break in the case. A neighbor actually turned in security footage from that morning. It was a view of Jennifer's driveway and it showed that she left in the Range Rover at 7.50 to take the kids to school and came back just a few minutes later at 8.05. Then at 10.25, the Range Rover backed out and left. So that tells us whatever happened to Jennifer happened in that garage between 8.05 and 10.25. So the obvious thing to do here is to track Fotis, his phone records mostly, because everyone has the phone on them nowadays and you know you can track GPS and things like that. So they wanna see if he's anywhere near the garage at that time. So the search warrant comes through for his phone records and they were able to access them, but all they saw was that the phone was at his house that morning and didn't move which obviously doesn't prove a lot because he can obviously leave his phone at home, but they did find some odd activity on his record for that evening. They tracked into Albany Avenue in Hartford, Connecticut around 7 p.m. He had made multiple stops along that stretch of road, so that looks very odd. And then when they decided to talk to the babysitter that morning, they asked like, what was it like working for this family? What is their relationship like as co-parents? What have you noticed? And Lauren noted that even when they were together, they fought a lot and Fotis always seemed distant. She said that he had a clear temper and that Jennifer was depressed mainly due to her relationship with Fotis. She said that Jennifer was a lovely person but was very, very sad. And she explained that the breaking point for her was the affair. And it turns out that after she found out about Michelle, Fotis actually had the gall to ask if Michelle and her daughter could move in with him and Jennifer. Yeah. That's right, he wanted them all to live together like some sort of weird fantasy land. And obviously Jennifer said no and she wanted to keep fighting for their relationship, but he wanted to move on and he wanted Michelle instead. And this absolutely crushed her. But the real final straw with him was when she found out that he bought a gun. She found a receipt for the gun and he felt scared that he might use it on her. And she thought it was weird that he didn't tell her that he was going to buy it. So Lauren explained to the police that after that happened, she made a plan to get her and the kids out of the situation completely. Once investigators had a better idea of how toxic this relationship was and that she was trying to flee the emotionally abusive relationship, it all started to make more sense. 
so they knew they were going to have to put together a timeline of what happened that day. They also needed to figure out what the hell Fotis was doing in Hartford to make multiple stops on the road in just a span of a few minutes. So they started working with the Hartford police to pull video footage from multiple security cameras around the city, and to gather even more footage, they actually drove through the city with the loudspeaker out the window of the car and screamed, if you have any surveillance footage, please send it to us so they can review it. So they gathered around 12 hours of surveillance from different places and started piecing everything together. They found that a black Ford Raptor truck had matched the stops that he was making on Albany Avenue in Hartford, according to his cell phone. He had actually stopped at 30 locations in a four-mile stretch. Several people had seen the driver and confirmed that it looked like Fotis at all of these little stops along the way. He was dropping trash bags and spreading them out into multiple garbage cans. In fact, they even caught him pushing one down a storm drain, and in one shot, they saw a woman leaning out the passenger side, reaching down toward the sidewalk, and this woman matched the description of Michelle. That's right, Michelle, the woman that Fotis was having an affair with. So the team of detectives obviously were dispatched right away to go look through these trash cans and see if they could find any evidence. And they were able to recover a couple of the bags. Inside one of the ones they found, they found a kitchen sponge, paper towels, and zip ties, plastic bags, a mop handle, and women's clothing completely covered in blood stains. They also found a few other weird clues, like a metal label with a logo on it for this French-made bicycle company, and they also found a box in the storm drain that had two Connecticut license plates, and when they looked up the license plate number, it was actually registered to FOTUS. So, at this point, they started searching the Hartford landfill, and they did this for three weeks. They spent hours going through 30 to 35 tons of garbage a day looking for Jennifer's body, but they found nothing. And eventually it was time to bring in Michelle for questioning. And when they talked to her, of course, she provided Fotis with an alibi. She said that morning they woke up together, they had sex, and they showered together. And I don't know why in every true crime case, people are like, oh, we woke up together and had sex and showered together. Like, that's literally every single person's alibi and it never ends up to be true. Anyway, sorry for that random rant. According to her, that's all that happened that morning until Fotis went and hung out with his friend Kent, who is a former lawyer, and Michelle left the house as well. She didn't see him again until 1 p.m. that day, and when they do meet back up, she says that he asked her to go help her clean a house for his client with him. But investigators thought that was really strange. Fotis is a rich guy, he owns his company, and he owns all these properties, and why would he be the one who cleans them all? It seems like he would have an employee do that. Michelle said after they were done cleaning, Fotis asked her if she wanted to go get Starbucks, and she said yes, but they never actually made their way to Starbucks. Instead, he kept stopping and tossing out random bags, according to Michelle, and she claimed that she doesn't know what they were or what was in them, and she also said that she was just kind of on her phone during all of this and not really paying attention, but she did confirm that it was her in the photos in the surveillance video. That's really all the police needed, so on June 1st, 2019, they were both arrested. It's been a very tough time for the whole family. Um, we're all very worried about Jennifer. How do you think the public looks at you? It depends. I think that the people that do not know me, they probably look at me as a monster. As a monster? Yes. Uh, and that is because of the information that has come out. And I cannot speak about what happens. Uh, so they 
take the narrative that they see from the arrests, the arrest warrants, and what is being reported in the press, and they draw their own conclusions. So I've already been convicted in their mind. What do you want people watching to know? I want them to know that this is a very, very challenging time for my whole family, and um, we just have to be patient to get to the other side and see what happens. Do you have any message for Jennifer's family? Yes, I send my prayers. I, uh, I had my differences with Jennifer. Like, it didn't work out for us, but that doesn't mean that I wish her ill in any way. Where do you see this going for you? Um, I, I try to go day by day. Uh, when it first started, uh, I seriously pinched myself a couple of times and I said, this cannot be true. I'm dreaming this. I'm wearing orange and I'm in a cell, uh, six feet by nine feet, and uh, this, this, is, this cannot be true. Do you think you've been treated fairly by the criminal justice system? I do. I think with the information they had, they did the best they could. And I understand they have tremendous uh, pressure on them. And it, it's also statistically, when something like this happens, 90 or 95% is the spouse. So I can understand why people feel like this. Do you have any thoughts about that, about her disappearance or what's happened? I do, but I'd rather not speak about them. Their official charge was tampering with or fabricating physical evidence and first degree hindering prosecution. But within just a few days, both of them were out on bond. Of course, they have a lot of money, but they had to put on ankle monitors and were ordered not to talk to each other at all. And still, Fotis was not allowed to see the kids, which Jennifer's family was really happy about. When all this happened, Michelle decided that she should probably move out of Fotis's house to distance herself from him as much as possible, so she and her daughter move out into an apartment of his mansion. After they were first released, he gave a pretty strange TV interview and he talked about the media making him out to be a monster. Here's audio of that interview. It's an exhausting fight. I love my children. That's about it. We've pled not guilty to the pending charges. We intend to plead not guilty to these charges, and we look forward to a full day in court. Now, Fotis' family members say that they're completely shocked, and they can't believe that he would have anything to do with this, and they believe that he's innocent. Michelle's family feels the same way. They feel like there's no way that she would have anything to do with this and that people are making a lot of assumptions. So at this point, the investigators did not have enough to actually charge Fotis with murder, but they felt like they were getting closer and they kept digging. So they found out that the black Ford Raptor truck in the surveillance video was actually registered to Fotis. It was technically registered to his company and it was driven by one of his employees. And that employee was leave, would leave his unreliable red Toyota truck at the home office in the morning, then swap it for the black Raptor to go to job sites and then take his red truck home at night. Now, Fotis did take the black Raptor to ditch all the trash bags that day, but they realized that someone else had driven the employee's old red truck that morning. The red Tacoma left Fotis's house at around 5.30 a.m. before the sun even came up. They tracked it to the Waverly Park right near the spot where Jennifer's Range Rover was found. And then hours later, they tracked the Tacoma at Mount Spring Road, which is one of Fotis's properties. So they decided that they were going to search the property and all other properties, and they wanted to do this big multi-day search. But in the end, they found absolutely nothing. 
so they figured out that the red Tacoma was actually returned to Fotis's house at 12.22 p.m., and sadly, by the time investigators actually connected it to the case, it was too late to process the truck for evidence. Not only that, but they had discovered that Fotis and Michelle had taken the truck to get detailed five days after Jennifer first went missing. This was a 20-year-old work truck, not something you would typically get detailed, and it was completely spotless after this. They tried searching it, but they found absolutely nothing. But before they left the auto shop where the car had gotten cleaned, one of the employees asked them if they wanted to see the old seats that were in the car. That's when they found out that Fotis had actually had the car cleaned and the seats replaced from an old Porsche that he had. The employee thought this was really weird and he had decided to hang on to the seats, which was super smart. Investigators knew there had to be a reason that Fotis wanted those seats gone, and of course, on the passenger side of those seats, they found a stain that could be blood. So they cut out the fabric and they sent it off for testing. They also asked the employee if Fotis ever rode a bike, and it turns out he did, and this employee had fixed it a while back. It was a unique bike with ram horn handlebars, just like the bike that matches the metal logo that they found in the trash. And that's when they went to the surveillance footage near Jennifer's house. They had found a video of someone riding that bike exactly towards Jennifer's house at 7.40 in the morning, so it seemed really obvious. Now, the day that she disappeared, he was headed towards her house when he said he was nowhere nearby. So they got a search warrant for Fotis' house, and when they went in there, they found these alibi scripts literally written out what he and Michelle did that day, and it included their friend Kent. So it showed that Kent could have possibly been involved in all this. So that was really interesting for them to find. Now at this point, her family was still hoping that there was a chance that Jennifer would come back alive, but then the forensic evidence report came back with some pretty devastating news. I'm sure that they ultimately figured that this was the case, but it just confirmed that the blood found in the garage, in the trash cans, and on the clothes and the other things actually did belong to Jennifer, and based on the amount of blood at the crime scene, the report actually classified her death as a homicide of violence and it also noted that it was considered non-survivable. But not only that, they also found Jennifer's blood had Fotis's blood mixed into it. Having that mixture of DNA at the crime scene is a slam dunk. Not only is his DNA found in the door handle of the mudroom, which means that he was at the crime scene area, Fotis had never lived at that house, so he had never visited, there was no reason for his DNA to be there, and the fact that it was mixed with her blood should have been case closed. So, the detectives try to talk to Michelle again to try to figure out if she's involved. The more they talk with her, the more she feels like she, it feels like she really could have been manipulated by Fotis. They also believe that she probably knew some things and was being manipulated into keeping them a secret. Police ended up telling her that the house they had cleaned up that day was Jennifer's. That's right, he had tricked her into helping him clean an entire crime scene while assuming that she didn't know what was going on. And as they're explaining all of this to her, she suddenly drops a bombshell. She suddenly said that she hadn't been with Fotis at all that morning and that he was gone by the time she woke up and he had left his phone in the house in the home office. And not only that, she said that at some point in the day, Kent had been to the house, his lawyer friend, and she said at one point it was the two of them in the office and Fotis had called and Kent told her to pick it up. Detectives said that this was done in order to make it seem like he was at the house when he really wasn't. When they interviewed Kent, he said that Michelle, he was with Michelle that morning, but he denied knowing anything about Jennifer. So they started to dig a little bit more into Fotis's company, and that's when they found out that his company was not doing well at all. 
In fact, it was failing miserably. It turns out that Fotis had had to borrow $2.5 million from Jennifer's dad to try to save the business, and it didn't work. When her dad died in 2018, he just stopped paying off the loan, and Jennifer's mom actually had to file a civil suit against him to get the money back. So it turns out that Fotis was actually in debt about $7 million from multiple loans. They also found out that Jennifer's parents had set up a $2 million trust fund for the kids and that they started to think that maybe his motive for killing Jennifer was so he could have full custody of the kids. Maybe in his mind, he thought he would have gotten full control of that $2 million. Several months into the investigation, something huge happened. A man came forward saying that he discovered a shallow grave in the woods around a gun club a week before Jennifer went missing. It was a fancy club for the super rich on 25 acres of land, and the guy was just in the woods hunting with his buddy when they came across this grave. It was a six-foot hole with two bags of lime, which I'm sure most of you true crime fans know that lime is sometimes used to hide bodies. It was covered with barbecue grates and a blue tarp. To them, it looked like someone was planning to bury a body, and remember this is before Jennifer went missing So when they found this, so then later the guy had overheard that Jennifer went missing and she was connected to Kent, who actually happened to be a member at the club. So the investigators dug more into this Kent guy and they found out that he was a terrible person. He was estranged from his ex-wife and she accused him of sexually assaulting her and she said that she was so afraid of him that she was worried that he and Fotis might actually come kill her one day. So that says a lot. So they questioned Kent again and of course he denied everything. So things were pretty quiet for a while and then in September of 2019, Fotis and Michelle were both arrested and this time it was for tampering with evidence. Both of them pled guilty and they were released on bond. Here's Fotis and his lawyer talking to the media after that release. Uh, the state is trying to put together a case that Mr. Dulos is responsible for that murder or for that disappearance. Uh, and we take the position there's insufficient evidence to conclude that she's even dead. In December, his two nieces flew in from Europe to support him and keep his spirits up. However, his lawyer prepared him to get ready for a murder charge, probably coming in the new year once the holidays were over. So then, on January 7, 2020, Michelle and Kent were both arrested for conspiracy to commit murder, and Fotis was arrested that same day in his home and charged with felony murder and kidnapping. And of course, they all pled not guilty. This time, Fotis was held on a $6 million bond, which he was able to gather the money and bail himself out. He was released on strict conditions, and Michelle was also released and put on house arrest. But Kent didn't have the money to post his bail, so he just had to sit in jail. The trial was coming up and prosecutors believed that they had a really strong case. They had over 400 pages of search warrants, affidavits, and other bits of evidence to prove that Fotis was the one who murdered Jennifer and that Michelle and Kent are both somehow involved. Now, of course, when you go to trial without a body, it can be very difficult to get the guilty charge. Fotis's lawyers were able to argue that maybe Jennifer wasn't even dead because they didn't have her body. Here's Fotis's slime bag of a lawyer talking before the trial even started. things in the world. We made arrests, that's great, but we still haven't found Jennifer, and that's our number one priority. If there's people out there, as we wholeheartedly suspect, that have information, uh, we would like to speak to them so that we can bring this case to uh, some type of, you know, closure for the family.
We miss Jennifer beyond words. The ache of her absence does not go away. Countless questions do remain unanswered. It went on to say, but the earth keeps spinning and somehow an entire year has elapsed. We can see it and measure it in the growth of her children who are taller, stronger and wiser and more like their mom every day. They actually started to push a disgusting theory. They had the nerve to say that Jennifer actually staged her own suicide in order to frame Fotis because she was so mad about the way their marriage ended. Michelle's lawyer claimed that she was misled by the police and said incorrect information when she was interviewed. They claimed that they twisted her words to fit the narrative essentially. According to Michelle, she had no idea that they were actually cleaning Jennifer's house that day and she said that she had no idea that Fotis was dumping trash out of the car while she was with him. And in that surveillance video that where she's seen leaning out of the car, she said she was wiping gum off the sidewalk, which like, what the fuck? Like, why would she be doing that? Um, I don't know exactly what to think about Michelle. Her family supports her and think that, thinks that she's also a victim of Fotis and that she was manipulated by him as well because she was under the impression that he wasn't even with Jennifer anymore. And they think she truly had no idea what was going on. So... Then before the trial even began, this case got even crazier. Fotis was ordered to court that day for an emergency hearing on whether or not they would revoke his bond. So he told his new girlfriend, yes, he had a new girlfriend at the time, Anna, to meet him at the courthouse and he was headed there too. While she was driving there, Fotis's lawyer called her and asked where he is. She said that she had no idea. So the lawyer looked at Fotis's location on his GPS tracker and find out that he is still at home. So Anna knew right away that something was wrong. She told the lawyer to call 911 and he did and the police were sent to his home and that's where they found Fotis sitting in his garage, sitting straight up inside the car, not moving inside the locked garage. The paramedics were called and the police broke into the garage and when they did, they found that Fotis had used a vacuum cleaner hose from the exhaust pipe of the SUV to the window where he was found unresponsive. He was surrounded by pictures of his kids, but they did get a faint pulse, so they ended up airlifting him to a hospital in the Bronx in critical condi condition. But Fotis never recovered. The kids were brought to the hospital to say goodbye, now losing both parents, and they made the decision to take him off life support. He did write a note, and I'll read it here for you now. Quote, all. I refuse to spend even more an hour in jail for something I had nothing to do with. I want it to be known that Michelle Traconis had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance, and neither did Kent Mawinney. My attorney can explain what happened with the bag on Albany Avenue. Everything else is a story fabricated by law enforcement. End quote. And then more than a month later, the state ended up dropping charges against Fotis, and now Fotis's attorney and his sister are fighting to this day to clear his name. They see his suicide note as proof of an innocent man who could not handle being accused of murder. But Jennifer's family feels like it's the complete opposite. They see it as an admission of guilt, and that the guilt finally caught up to him, so he took his own life. The state is still pursuing charges of conspiracy to commit murder against Michelle and Kent. However, Michelle is currently out on bond and Kent has turned into a state witness and is now implicating Michelle in the murder after spending nine months in jail and he was actually released on reduced bail. Now to this day, investigators still have not found Jennifer's body and they're still searching in April of 2021. 
Connecticut State Police have visited the property on Spring Road to follow up on old leads. They even brought out this man named Bob Perry, who is nationally known as the Bone Finder. He uses ground-penetrating radar to discover secret grave sites, but even he hasn't been able to find anything yet. Jennifer's friends and family are heartbroken and absolutely devastated by her loss. Like I said earlier, Jennifer was incredibly loved and she's missed to this day, and honestly, people just want answers. And of course, they want to find her body because that would really confirm that she's no longer alive and they want to be able to bury her and really start the process of grieving. Here's the police and a news broadcast giving an update from the family. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Murder on the Map. Just want to give a quick update here that Jennifer's kids are currently being raised by their grandmother in New York, which is good and honestly the best place they can possibly be. It's just a shame that they don't have either parent now. And Jennifer definitely deserves justice. Those kids need answers. Her family and friends need answers. And it sucks because now that Fotis is gone, they may never get the answers that they truly deserve. So if you know anything about Jennifer's disappearance, please come forward to the Connecticut State Police or the FBI. Um, Anything you may know can help. If you want to get more information about her case or more information on where you can donate to help, um, you can check the source notes in the show description. Our theme music is composed by Tim Beak. Find more of his stuff at timbeak.com. Murder on the Map is a Radio Free Roscoe production. If you have a case you'd like for me to cover from your state, I am still looking for a lot of stuff in the Midwest and the Northeast. Please hit me up on Instagram at Taylor B Talks or at Murder on the Map Pod. You can also email me at Taylor at MurderOnTheMap.com. I'll be back next week with an all new episode. Thank you.